Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, for this is God speaking, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to be speaking a little bit more about the high priest. And this is a theme that started back in chapter 5, and it's going to continue all the way to chapter 10. So yes, there's a lot of repetition in the book of Hebrews. The reason being is it's that big of a deal. The audience needs to understand this. If you're going to hold on to this <coughs> Christian faith that you now have, you need to understand why it's so much better than the Jewish faith that you left behind. And he's going to use this idea of a, of a priest comparing Jesus as high priest to the Aaronic priesthood. But let's start here in verse um, verse 13 says God made a promise to Abraham so let's look at this promise this is the this is one of those things that every Christian should be aware of what promise did Abraham receive from God so let's look in Genesis chapter 12 and I would like for someone to volunteer to read verses 1 2 and 3 Pastor Sean's been talking about this covenant idea for the past several Sundays. And what is a covenant? I said we have a, a covenant. What am I saying that we've made? A pact. A pact. Promise. A promise. So this promise that was made to Abraham back here in Genesis chapter 12 is what you see here is this pagan gentleman by the name of Abram at the time is called out of that and becomes the first Jew. There were no Jewish people until Abram was called by God and God entered into this covenant with him. And this covenant gets reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. So everybody turn to Genesis chapter 15. And it's a good idea to write next to Genesis 12, 3. See Genesis 15, 5. So Genesis chapter 15, 5. God. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Okay, and read verse 6. 
then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Yeah. All right. So the the aspects of this promise. There there are five aspects to this promise that God gave Abraham. What are the ones that we've read so far? What what is great nation? A great nation. I'm not going to write these in any particular order, but yet a nation. Land. Make sure I have the list here, so I don't look foolish. Okay. I will give you land. Blessing. Okay, I will bless those who bless you. And curse those who curse you. Bless those who bless. <clears throat> and the opposite of that is and curse those who curse. <clears throat> what else does he promise you? Okay, that, that goes with the, the nation. You have so many children that you'll be a great, powerful nation. That through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There we go. Yep. And Let's go like, bless everyone. His name will be great. And a great name. That's not on your paper, but it would behoove you to add that to your paper. The five components of this promise that God made to Abraham. Now, there's a neat verse there. Verse number six. It says, he, Abraham, believed the Lord. And how is that written in your Bibles? All caps. All caps. And what does that mean? Yahweh. That means Yahweh. So Abraham believed Yahweh. He believed the promise that God just gave him. And what did that count towards Abraham as? Righteousness. Righteousness. Does the Mosaic law exist at this time? No. Nope. Does not exist. There is no Mosaic law. There's no sacrifices. There's no temple. None of this exists yet. So what was Abraham credited righteousness by? His belief. Now, did, did Abraham have an understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? No. No. no this is a good 2,000 years before that happened. But what Abraham did have was a promise from God that this would come true. And Abraham believed it. Now what is significant about the fact that Abraham is told you're going to have multiple descendants, so many that you're going to be a great nation. Why was that a big deal? And why was that seemingly impossible? So his wife was, uh, she wasn't able to get pregnant. She was old as dirt. And he was old as dirt. He was 75 when he got the, around 75 when he got that promise. Right. They're both old. Very, very old. Now this promise is a big deal. And it's quoted, look in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just hold your uh, place in Genesis. We'll be coming back there. But I hope next to Genesis 15 you write Galatians <coughs> chapter 3. want to point out that how big of a deal this promise is. When Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, which would be a, a, a European, a non-Jewish church, he's quoting this here. So I'm going to start in verse, verse 1 of chapter 3 in Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. 
did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So did you, were you indwelt with the Holy Spirit because you followed the Mosaic law or were you filled with the Holy Spirit because of your faith? This, of course, is a rhetorical question. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And now he's going to go all the way back to Genesis 15, 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is saying Abraham as someone who was declared righteous because of his faith. He's saying that is the exact same way that it is for Christians today. You are not saved by your good works. You are saved by putting your faith in Christ. Look at verse 7. It says, Now then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, to a Jew, who would they say is a son of Abraham? Jews were. So now, he's about to add something that would be very offensive. He says, it's those who are faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify which group of people? Gentiles. The Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel, I have gospel underlined, beforehand to Abraham. So how did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Mike, we're in Genesis, uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. This is how God preached the gospel to Abraham. He said this, and you, all the nations, will be blessed. All of them. Not just the Jews. But every single ethnicity in this world is going to be blessed because of this promise. So it came from Abraham because his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was King David. And then King David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, just like 40 of them, is Jesus. What's that? It is 14. Yes, not 40. 14. 14. So that's 12 greats. All right, back to uh, Genesis 15. So this promise is a very, very big deal. You might have any questions so far. I don't want to just talk the entire time. All right, verse 7. God is still speaking to Abraham. And he said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So God says to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these to God, cut them in half, and lay each half against the others. Now this is kind of gross, but he takes all of these animals and he splits them bilaterally down the middle. He sets half of the carcass over here and the other half over here. 
and he does that for all of the animals. So there's a there's if each of these tables is a half of a dead animal, and he lays it out like that. So kind of a very bloody scene. Keep that in mind. That, that that's going to pay dividends later. <clears throat> it says, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away because he's not Abraham yet. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. Now what land is he speaking of? Egypt. Okay, this is foretelling of Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. This is, of course, talking about which event? Exodus. Yeah, the Exodus. Verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. So you have these carcasses of animals split out. Half of the cow here, half of the cow there. Half of the goat, half of the goat, and so on and so forth. And while Abram is asleep over here, God walks through it. Now what this is symbolic of is in the ancient uh, Middle East, when people were making a covenant, like a blood oath, they would split the animals in half. And the two people who were going into agreement would walk between the, those severed animals together. The implication is, if I back out of my promise, if I break my covenant, if I renege on what I have said to you, then may you split me in half as these animals are. It was, it was a binding oath entering into a covenant. So when we see Abram asleep over here and God passes between those animal carcasses by himself, God's saying, I'm doing this. Abraham, you have... Abram, you have absolutely nothing to do with this whatsoever. You believe me, that's all it takes. I'm making this unilateral covenant that all this will take place. Can you split God in half and kill him? Okay, <laughs> exactly. So it's a guarantee that this is going to happen. And in Genesis 22, this promise is reiterated to Isaac. Abraham had to wait 35 years from when he got this promise to the birth of Isaac. So for 35 years, he says, okay, I'm going to be a great nation. I mean, I'm already kind of old, and every year that ticks by, he and his wife are getting older and older and older. But he still believes at some point, i got to have at least one kid. And it took 35 years before Isaac was born. Abraham endured with a lot of patience before he ever saw the start of that promise being fulfilled. That's why he is a testament of faith. All right, so flip back to, um, well, no, not yet. We'll flip back there later. So back in Hebrews, it says God swore by himself when he made this covenant. Why did Hebrews say that God swears by himself? Because normally you look for somebody greater than you where they don't have anybody yeah. there. Yeah, God has no peer. 
Like when we take an office, when, when you join the military, when you uh, become president, when you make certain notes, you swear on the Bible, like in a court of law. You know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You are swearing on something greater than you. Well, God has no peer. There's nothing greater. So because of that, hey, I swear by my own name, my own reputation, my own sake, everything, that this is going to happen. And this is something that God does several times through Scripture. So let's do some reading. Who would like to read Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23? Isaiah 45, 23. You can see where I'm going with this. Who wants to read Jeremiah 22, 5? Thank you. Who wants to do the next one? It's only one verse. I'll do the long one. I'll do Luke. I right, go ahead and read Isaiah 45, 23, please. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. All right, Jeremiah 22, 5. <coughs> but if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. All right. Somebody want to read uh, Jeremiah 49, 13 for me? For I have sworn by myself declares the Lord that what was that? Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse, and all her cities shall be per perpetual waste. Alright, so now we have three verses where you see God swearing by himself. So it's a big deal when God says, I will do this. God wants everyone to understand He's definitely going to do it. There shouldn't be any fear that, and what if God just changes his mind or something? All right, so now let's look at a New Testament story where this occurs, where God swears by himself. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 67. And we're going to read about a man named Zechariah who was a priest, and he had just been told, or he had actually his son, who would become John the Baptist, had just been born. And Zechariah, in verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn for salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So he's, when Zechariah was told that your son will be the forerunner of Christ, the person who goes before Jesus and sets the path. He is saying, we know the Messiah is at hand. And we see the Messiah as the fulfillment. He mentions David, but he also goes all the way back to this covenant from Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Verse 76. And you, child, speaking to his baby John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercies of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the promise, you know, God swearing over and over and over, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Zechariah recognized it was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, have I covered, I think I got down through A, B, and C. Are there any blanks that are not filled in? All right, so now let's ask this question. Look in Matthew 5.33. So we see where God has sworn by his own name multiple times. Anybody know where I'm going with this? Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. So this is Jesus speaking. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is what used to be said in the Old Covenant. This, this is the same. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So now, some Christians have been put in a conundrum by this verse. What is that conundrum? How would this potentially be problematic? Well, do you make oaths? I made an oath. Yes, you did. So by that verse, you're sinning. Yeah. Is that what it means? No, I think so. If you get called to be a witness in a court case and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, are you sinning according to that verse? So, how do we understand this verse? This is where I pause. Like, you should not try to win an argument by trying to swear. Like, you know, sometimes we get in the discussion and we want to win the argument and say, well, I swear by my, I swear to you what, my mother or my dead father or... I, I remember, yep. I remember kids all the time in school. I swear to God, I didn't do whatever it was. Uh-huh. Yep, all the time. It was just, it was flippant. It was just thrown out there like it meant nothing. In their lying. <laughs> right. More than likely, more than likely, they were probably lying. Well, uh, uh, so in verse thirty-three, he's quoting, um, "You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vo- your vows to the Lord." And then verse 34, he doesn't say the Lord's, uh, well, yeah, actually, this is Jesus speaking. Mm-hmm. So he's literally saying not to make an oath. Later on, he says, may your yes be yes or no or no, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming just be a person of your word and without having to rely on making oaths. There definitely is the idea that you should be such men and women of integrity that when you say, yes, I will, or no, I didn't, then people take you at your word. But there are certain denominations within Christianity that will refuse to take any oaths. 
So when they do join the military or they have to appear in a courtroom or any official type setting where an oath is usually required, they, they have, con what's the word for it? Exceptions made for them. Because they believe so strongly that to do so would violate the words of Christ right here. So let's, let's examine this a little bit. Because you'll have people who aren't even Christians try to bring up stuff like this and trip you up with it. So it's, it's good that you have an understanding of what is Jesus actually saying and are there other verses that say this? Because if you can only find one verse that supports a very strong position you're going to hold and argue about, that's it's not always the best best way to, to form your theology on one verse. And I'll, I'll show you why here. What was going on at this time in Jesus' day is that the Pharisees had taken the Mosaic Law and they expanded it. They expanded it greatly. One of the, the commandments from the Old Testament regarding the Sabbath was you could not plow. can't plant crops. Well, by the time of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, if you have a chair that's sitting on a dirt floor and you sit down and it scoots a little bit, you put rows in the dirt. You are basically plowing a field. That is how far they took it. And what they would do to, like the commandment, thou shalt not lie. Or when it came to making oaths. If you said, I will make an oath, I swear by the altar that I will do this. But then if they didn't, then they would say, well, I only swore by the altar. I didn't swear by the gold or the gift that was on the altar. Therefore, I'm not truly beholden to that, that oath that I made with you. So the Pharisees had all these loopholes that were built in where they twisted the very simple command of don't lie so where they could get around it and basically screw people over by making promises of lending money or not lending money, of doing anything, and then backing out of it. They would have these tricks with the words. So that's the specific issue that was going on. But if it's true that to make any oath at all is a sin, then I'm going to show you several places where Paul sinned. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Go ahead and read that one for us. And I got all of them written out, so if you want to go ahead and look at the others, that'd be great. really helps to flow. I'm not in the radio business, but we are recording this, and you don't want to have dead silence. One of the golden rules of radio. You can't have silence. So I'm just going to keep talking about random stuff. You are. Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Yep. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. What did Paul just do in that verse? God is my witness. As God is my witness. What does that sound like? 
Now it sounds like he's he's invoking the name of God to say what I'm telling you is the truth, as God is my witness. Right? Who wants to read Second Corinthians one twenty three? Moreover, I call God as witness again, my soul, that to spare you I came no more to come. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. Right. For by faith you stand. All right, so what did he say there? Same thing. Same thing. God is my witness. God is my witness. All right, Galatians 1.20. what I am writing to you before God I do not lie before God so again invoking the name of God and finally 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 5 for we never came with words of flattery as you know nor with the pretext for greed God is witness so we hear several times Paul is invoking the name of God to add authority to what he's saying and to tell his people, I'm telling you the truth. As God is my witness, I have not stopped praying for you. So if you take Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, as an absolute prohibition against making any oath or swearing anything ever at all under any circumstances, then in writing several books of the Bible, the Apostle Paul said. Sorry. Go ahead. I have a question. Yep. So, there is a difference, I, I guess, in terms of saying, for example, in the life of, I'm going to use you as an example, I swear by the life of Mike, or I swear by Mike, then Mike knows, or Mike has seen, or Mike is my witness. It's different than me just swearing and say, oh, I swear by my children's life, or I swear by, is this, well, I, I, you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes. When you look at where we started in Hebrews, when it says you swear by something greater than yourself. Okay, right, so by God. You, yeah, so you can't really swear you know, by me. Okay. So in this case, it's talking about you're swearing by something greater than yourself. Paul is swearing the veracity of his statement, the truthfulness of whatever it is he's about to tell you, and invoking the name of God to add authority, to add weight to that. So my, my overall argument is, when Jesus said, don't swear either by your head or the altar or anything like that, he was dealing with the very specific issue that was going on at that time. And why I would say that does not apply to anything else is because you see Paul do that later. You also see other people sin in the Bible. So yes. I think someone who's going to fight on that argument that you can't, so it's not necessarily that God condoned what he was doing. Just like God did not condone David. He didn't condone, like, so. He did not condone, yeah, yeah, he did not condone the sin that's mentioned in the Bible. Correct. So if, so if you're saying, like, oh, he sinned, like that was the end of the argument, they would probably just argue back that. God might not be that. So you well, my, my counter to that would be if the Apostle Paul is writing these words that are called Scripture, God-breathed, 
then all those are authoritative words. He's setting an example. So when you're talking about a narrative, when I'm telling a narrative about what happened, here's a story, here's David, and here's all the sins that David committed. Mm-hmm. That, that is different. I'm, I'm giving you the fact. Here you have Paul, who was called by God, divinely inspired through the Holy Spirit to write scripture. And he includes these statements. It would not, to me it doesn't follow that as he's writing divinely inspired words, that he's sinning at the same time as the Spirit is speaking through him and he's putting pen to paper. Or pen to papyrus or whatever the proper language. When Christ is giving this uh, uh, sermon and at the mouth, his audience that he has at this point, there was a lot of uh, Jews there, uh, Pharisees. And he also explained the, when he said that if you look as a, as a woman, you have heard, you have heard if you are caught in the act of adultery. But then he said, but I tell you that if you look at a woman, and you and you desire her in your heart already, because they they were uh, using or they were uh, misinterpreting the the actual commandment, <coughs> and they were doing that with a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. So you have to look into the content of what he was saying and who he was directing to in order to get the application for this day, and that's through all, the whole Bible. Oh yeah. And at that point, he was talking directly to the Pharisees. Yep. And that's one of the things that really made the Pharisees mad is because he's challenging their interpretation of the law. And he says, it's, you say this, and he goes to the Old Testament, but then he has the audacity to say, but I say to you, this is how it should be interpreted. So when he stands up there to all these learned men, these Pharisees, these scribes, says, you're wrong, and I'm going to correctly interpret the scripture. Not only am I going to correctly interpret the scripture, I'm going to add to it such as don't commit adultery. Well, I'm saying if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. In doing so, Jesus is claiming, I have the authority to do this. It's another argument for the, the Trinity. All right, excellent. All right, let's go back to Hebrews. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So the first question I want to ask is, who are the heirs of the promise of Abraham? I've already made mention of it. Everybody who believes. Everybody who believes. So right now he's talking to, yes, his Jewish congregation, but he is talking to all of us today if we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this pertains to us. He says, I made a promise, and then I guaranteed it with an oath. I say that oath is when he, he walked through the, the animal carcasses. I made the promise in chapter 15, or chapter 12, and I'm making the oath in chapter 15. Yeah, 12 made the promise, 15 made the oath. So that by two unchangeable things, those two unchangeable things are the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. And I have that underlined because that's important for people to understand. God doesn't lie. We, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. <clears throat> 
So we have this mention of we have fled for refuge. A Jewish audience, which the book of Hebrews was written to, they would have made a connection to the Levitical law that talked about cities of refuge. Anybody know what these cities of refuge were? Or is this a brand new concept? Brand new concept. Okay. Brand new concept, okay. Are, are those for the people that were sinning murderers or something like that, that they will push away from the congregation uh, in the desert? Yes. So what would happen, um, John and I are out working, okay? And I'm swinging my hammer, and as I come back like this, the head of the hammer flies off, hits John on the head, and John's dead. Now, it was unintentional, but you know his wife is like, you killed him on purpose, and she hires an assassin to come get me. Well, until some sort of court case can be adjudicated, there are cities that were set up in various locations throughout the land of Egypt, throughout the Promised Land, where you could run to. There were cities of refuge, and you were safe there. The, the assassin was not allowed to go in there and kill you. Now, if you decided you wanted to wander out and take a walk through the wilderness, and the Avenger found you and killed you, that was your fault. But as long as you were in that city of refuge, you were safe. So that's an allusion to that point. So we have fled for refuge. <clears throat> and where they flee to refuge, in this case, this hope, this hope they're holding fast, this hope that is set before them, is, of course, Jesus. <clears throat> and we'll get into that in a second. So the second little rabbit trail I want to follow, um, in verse 18 it says there are two unchangeable things. And then it says it is impossible for God to lie. So when we talk about the attributes of God, I can write over here, what makes God, the monotheistic God of the Jews and Christians that we worship, what makes him different from the Greek gods, the Hindu gods, and all this? What are the, what are the unique characteristics of God? There are three omnis, so let, let's get started with that. You might know the three omnis? Omnipotent, omniscient. No, don't say it too fast, i got to write it. Sorry. Omnipotent, yes. I'm not, you know what, I'm just going to write all-powerful. Because I can't spell. All powerful. Okay, that's omnipotent. What's the next one? Omniscient. Okay, omniscient, which is all knowing. Alright, what's the next one? Omni omnipresent, which is he's everywhere all at once. Okay, those are three omnis. What? Everywhere, all no, at no. <laughs> Oh, everywhere. Okay, all yes. There, everywhere. <clears throat> you know what I mean. All right. So everywhere, all at once. Now, what are the other characteristics that make God separate? The relationship we have with Okay. That relational aspect is there, but Zeus had relationships with many, many women. So, holiness. Okay, holiness. He is set apart. Holy. Nope. 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 His goodness. I N E S S. There we go. There we go. English is hard. Agreed. Holiness. There we go. All right. <clears throat> we can spend all day on this. He's holy. Another fancy word. Transcendent. I definitely can't spell that. Anybody know what transcendent means? Please try though. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's better. <laughs> I didn't initially have this in there. This is just. Holy Spirit led. Holy Spirit led. Yes. We gotta, we gotta make sure all right, so he's all powerful, all knowing, everywhere at once. He's holy, 
without sin, he is transcendent. That means separate from his creation. The Hindus worship the God of the mountains, the God of the rivers, and all this pantheistic understanding, right? The God of the elephants or whatever the case may be. It's all part of nature. It's still part of the creation. God is transcendent. He is separate from his creation. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. And immutable. Immutable. That's what I was going for. Um, Mutable. Spell it right? I think so. Which is unchanging. And this is an often overlooked aspect. Because what you hear a lot of modern scholars tell you is where God's understanding of fill in the blank has evolved over time. God evolved from the mean, demented, psychopathic killer of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament into this loving, effeminate, flip-flop, hippie, Jesus is my homeboy type person who's never mean to anybody and never raises his voice and gets along with everyone all the time. And of course, that says the immutability of God is a lie. Now, it is wonderful for us as Christians that God is completely unchanging. Why is that such a wonderful, wonderful aspect and a comforting aspect of God? He's trustworthy. Because if God can evolve and have a different understanding, then the promises he made way back in 2000-whatever B.C., God might say, you know what, I have a better understanding of things now, and I'm just going to not, you know what, forget that. Well, he got mad, and then, like we do, he mm -hmm. got mad, and then, not, I was going to lie to you that, now I'm not. Yeah, I, God gets mad, flies off the handle. So God is immutable. The promises he made, because he is unchanging, they're trustworthy. If God could change his mind, like humans change their mind, if he could grow and evolve, then his promises are, are not that trustworthy. So I got written on here, there are three reasons that God must be immutable. And I said I got this from the Gospel Co Coalition. I was wrong. I got it from gotquestions.org. So that's for all the people listening on Sermon Audio, all five of you cannot be sued. All right, the first thing, God exists outside of time. Okay? In order for something to change, Time has to pass. God exists outside of time. And physicists will tell you that if matter did not exist, then time wouldn't exist. That's like metaphysical. So I'm just going to not go into that too much. But God exists outside of time. Number two, God is perfect. And if you're perfect, why would you ever need to change? Because when something changes, it's either changing for the better or it's changing for the worse. If it's not doing either of those, then there's no point in changing. God, being absolutely perfect, never has a need to change. And finally, the immutability of God is directly related to his being all-knowing. Anybody want to venture a guess how? Because he doesn't learn. He already knows it. He already knows it. Most of what causes humans to change is that they learn new information. You're right. We can grow in our understanding. Our perceptions can change over time. We grow, we adapt, we learn. God has no need to do any of that. And I have a blank here. Has it ever occurred to you 
that nothing has ever occurred to God. Words God has never spoken. You know, I never thought of that before. So he is unchanging. And because of his unchanging nature, when we see words like it that says, God does not lie, we can trust him. Anybody have any questions on that? Anybody want to ask more questions about matter and time? And Okay, good. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So uh, what about these times? And uh, I like to play devil's advocate. Absolutely, good. I love so, um, and at the same time, it'll be extremely useful because we will stumble upon people that have biblical knowledge and, and will just want to um, will satisfy certain questions. Mm -hmm. But anyways, um, so for example, you got a verse uh, in which, I wish I could make the reference, he's talking about how he regrets creating humanity, right? Mm -hmm. um, before the flood. And then you have uh, another in which uh, Lot got saved because he was convinced of, by the prayer of, somebody help me out here. Abraham. Abraham, thank yep. you. Yes, so uh, he was praying constantly and constantly, and we could argue that he was he already planned to save Lot from that city mm -hmm. um, and his family um, even before Abraham asked for it, and that the regret was not actually a regret of hey, I wish I didn't create them. It was more of the pain and feeling the, that the comes grief. with it. Yes. Right, the grief. Mm -hmm. But um, how would you explain it? How would you explain those things? So it does say that right prior to the flood, everybody's, all the people on that planet at that time saved Noah and his family. They were just wicked, horrible people and said God regretted that he had made man. And the idea of regret there is not, I wish I had never done that. It is the, this grieves me. This greatly disturbs me. And there's another passage in the Bible. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Somebody can Google it. It says, God does not regret like men regret. So to, when you see the passage that say God regrets whatever it may be, it's not in the same way, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I made a mistake. Because God is perfect. There are no mistakes. God, can, God is an emotional being like we are. He feels pain. He feels sorrow. When his creation rebels against him, it causes him grief. So in regard to um, Abraham and Lot, God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, but you know, what, about, what about all the innocent people there? He goes, God's like, yeah, the whole city's wretched. He goes, but, but what if God, what if, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, the numbers aren't important. 50, 45, 40, and then he goes 30, and 20, and 10. And sure. He, 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 he kept going down. God's saying, okay, for the sake of 50, I won't destroy it. For the sake of 30, for the sake of 20. If I find 10 righteous people in that city, I will not destroy it. Now, ultimately, only Lot, his wife, and his three daughters, two daughters, were saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. So there weren't that many. So there are a couple ways to look at it. not righteous. They're called righteous. It says righteous Lot was saved alone and his family. Well, he might not have been righteous at that moment, though. Righteous yeah. later on. Righteous compared to who? All right, but there are a couple ways to look at that. One, was God willing to change his course of action based upon the prayers of his people? Because if you say, no, he's not, then why do any of us bother praying at all? Because you go to Moses and Israel. He, he went to 
Israel. Yes. And God's like, all right. Yep. God says, I'm going to wipe every single person out, all these rebellious Jews who they've seen my miracles. I've been nothing but gracious to them. I'm going to kill every single one of them, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And God could do that because Moses was a descendant of Abraham, so then this promise was still intact. But Abraham stands up and says, oh, but God, Moses, what would the people say? They're here about this in Egypt, and they will laugh at you. And God says, very well, for my name's sake, I'm not going to kill all of them. So did God completely change his mind, or does God allow himself to be moved by the prayers of his people? He already knew that was going to happen. So He knew it was going to happen. So this, this concept of the foreknowledge of God is definitely there. But anyone who says God has already determined, not just knows, but actually laid out every single thing that's going to happen, and God will never, ever change his mind, then yeah, then, then what is the purpose of prayer? Because you see examples in Moses and Abraham of God seeming like, I'm going to do something, but I can scale back the severity, I will delay the enforcement, I will show mercy because of the prayers of my people. Let's say um, God himself is unchanging, but, but how he executes his plan mm -hmm. is still up to him to choose how he goes about it. Yes. So his plan is not unchanging like he is. I mean, his ultimate plan is because it's already laid out, right? But I, I guess it... I hope I'm not seeing something anti-biblical here, but um, how he does things and how he intervenes in our lives and everything is not necessarily who he is that's changing. It's how he's he, mm -hmm. uh, act, you know, interacting with us. What was it? Um, Hezekiah, was it King Hezekiah? Mm -hmm. God says, you're going to die. And Hezekiah begs, Lord, please, no, don't do this. Give me another chance. And God says, okay, fine. You're still going to die, but I'll give you X number of years. The judgment is still coming. You're still going to die. I mean, all men are going to die. But because of Hezekiah's prayer, God extended his life beyond what God originally was going to do. Prayer has the effect, and we don't exactly know how, of moving God. God, and, and in no way does that lessen his sovereignty. It doesn't lessen his majesty. Prayer works. And if you don't believe prayer works, then why do we do it? Why do we pray, Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I pray for the safety of my family. Lord, I pray for the salvation of whoever it is. If we don't believe that that prayer actually is effectual and does something, then why do we keep doing it? All right. I want to talk about the city of refuge. All right. Does anybody have any blanks that aren't filled in? Is anybody actually filling out the blanks? Okay. I'm going to go to my beautiful drawing here. I'm going to erase all this stuff. All right. So here I have a boat loading on water. And over here... I have a man standing on the shore, and there's a house. If it wasn't obvious, I just felt like I might need to explain what that is. For the recording. For, for the recording, yes, that's true. I have a drawing of a boat on the water and a man standing on shore. All right, look back in Hebrews, verse 19. 
Remember, I, I mentioned in verse 18 that refuge, that uh, the hope that is set before you, that's Jesus. Verse 19 makes this obvious. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in my awesome drawing here, you have a boat on the water. And how does the anchor on a boat work? What does it do? It goes through the floor. It goes through the floor. So here's there's a hole where the anchor is. It has a chain. And it goes all the way down to the ocean floor. And it catches on something. And what is the purpose of the anchor? To keep it there. To keep it there. Okay, the boat goes out. They're going to fish. They found a good spot. They want to stay right there. They drop the anchor. It holds them in place. If there's a big storm coming, they don't want to be swept out to sea. Drops the anchor, and it will hold them in place in spite of the waves and the wind and all that. Now, this is the second nautical term that the author of Hebrews has used. Does anybody remember the first one? Drifting away. Let us hold fast, lest we drift away. Now, I use the analogy of a boat that was tied loosely to the dock. Here's my incredible dock. And it's not tied very well. The guy falls asleep. This knot comes undone. And the guy wakes up an hour later and he's you know, a quarter of a mile away from shore. So the author of Hebrews is apparently a boatman. So anyway, here this anchor secures the boat to the floor. It holds it in place. It stabilizes it. It provides a sense of security. Now it says we, all believers, we heir to the promise of Abraham. We have an anchor, but where is that anchor? It's not at the bottom of the ocean. Where is it? Right. The anchor is Christ, and where did He go? Up into heaven. All right. So, in order to show that this is way up high, here are some clouds. Here are the stars up here. Here's the sun, and the anchor, the anchor of our soul. <clears throat> And where does it say this anchor is secure? Behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. What in the world is behind the curtain? Like a temple. The temple. Excellent. So we've I've, I've drawn the temple several times. I'm going to draw it very small. And but just as awesome. So this curtain, so this is the holy place, right? <laughs> this is the holy place. And this up here, what was this one called? Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies. It says it went behind the curtain up in heaven. The idea is that all the earthly trappings, the temple, all that stuff was a mere shadow of the reality, the true tent, as we'll see in later chapters of Hebrews, that is in heaven. It's a reflection. It's a poor imitation of what's actually in heaven. So in the earthly temple, the Ark of the Covenant was hidden behind a very, very thick curtain. It was like four inches thick. It was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. 
It was massive. And behind that curtain sat the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was what was representative of God's presence. It's where the high priest would go and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice once a year. This verse is telling us that now, for those who have put their faith in Christ, Jesus basically tethered our souls with him behind this curtain and secured an anchor there. And it says he went there as a forerunner. A forerunner is a military term. Usually it's like an advanced scout, usually a cavalry scout that goes out, locates the enemy, picks the best route for the bulk of the army to move to engage the enemy, or the best route of retreat. A forerunner is also a boat that would guide larger boats into the port of Alexandria, which was known to be very difficult to navigate. So you have this little pilot boat that would go out there, meet the larger boat, and say, hey, follow me. I will help you navigate the rocks, the shallows, the, the, the coral reefs that are there. I will guide you safely to the safety of the harbor. Both understandings is what a forerunner is. Jesus has gone behind the true tent, behind the curtain of the true tent, into the presence of God the Father himself as a forerunner. The priest, when they went into the earthly temple, they were simply a representative. They went in there one time, did their duty, and left. I don't know how long it took. Let's say it took 10 minutes. And they wouldn't do that again for a whole year. Inside the temple, there's nothing where you're supposed to sit down. You walk into that temple in any part of it, you're constantly working. There's no bark allowed during there. Constantly working. But it says Christ went to heaven in the true presence of God, behind that curtain, secured our hope, our soul there, and then he sat down. He's a forerunner. He's not a mere representative. He is there presently. And the idea is, just like the army would follow the advanced scout, or the boats would follow that pilot ship into the safety of the harbor, Jesus is there to show us the way and to guide us there. And he's there now. And that should provide great comfort to everyone who has put their faith in there, uh, in him. And that is why he is not a priest, and that curtain's gone, by the way. That's why he's not a priest of the order of Aaron, because they were simply sinful men who represented us to God. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a forerunner who is showing us the way. Anybody have any questions? It talks about a lot of things. All right, well, in that case, I will see you guys next week. <laughs>